Hello everybody, my name is Spencer Luganbuehl. Welcome to episode 2 of Redboard Rewind. My special guest today is Jonathan Kinchin, the People's Champ. Today we're going over Saturday's stake races from Saratoga, as well as an in-and-out form cycler. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old So now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Jonathan Kinchin. JK, how are you doing today? What's going on? It's uh, got the little Travers, Travers hangover. A little bit sad that uh, that, that we're we're uh, getting to the end of this thing. But there is one more week left. A lot of fun racing. Then we got what five five more racing days left. Six. Six. Six racing days left. That's that's uh, more than enough to get get what needs to be done done. So we're going to start off. We're going to go in reverse order on Saturday with the stake races from Saratoga. We're going to start with the Travers. Just what your overall thoughts on the Travers were. Well, I thought Code of Honor was remarkable. Um, I think we, we finally saw what we, what, we, what we all envisioned we were going to see when Code of Honor broke his maiden here at Saratoga last summer for Suge McGahee and a trainer that doesn't necessarily have his horses ready to rock and roll first out. So... I think that there was all this expectation of Code of Honor to be a, a derby-type horse, and um, he kind of came into the derby under the radar with some subpar performances down in South Florida, and then he had the, the, the race where he finished third and was eventually placed second with a disqualification. And then the Dwyer comeback race where he was, you know, in a slow pace where Johnny Velasquez dropped a stick and he still exploded like a really good horse. And um, I think there were still questions about whether or not he was going to end up getting a mile and a quarter and those questions were absolutely answered on Saturday. So I know now with Tacitus that we have, you know, this is three weird performances back to back to back. You have the, uh, he fell down on his nose last time out. This time he kind of got stuck in the pocket. What did you feel about the ride on Tacitus? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, I think I understand what Jose was trying to do. And, and, um, and I commend the aggressive nature of the ride where he, I think he wanted to put him into the race, get his position moving forward. I think he assumed that Mucho Gusto was going to clear, and if and when he did that, he would be able to tip right out and get outside of Mucho Gusto and be sitting second, stalking the pace with the blinkers on. Uh, unfortunately, Mucho Gusto didn't do that, and he ended up getting stuck down inside. Then there was other opportunities for, for Jose to make some decisions to try to rectify uh, plan A, um, kind of going into the tank, and he didn't really make those, but I, I get it. I understand. It, it would He's a big horse. You can't really stop him and pull him back out of there and try to put him around. I think he just put him in the race and said, if we're good enough, we'll be good enough. And he almost was. Yeah, he almost was good enough. He, he held on for second. He held off all the other talented horses in that race, but he wasn't uh, wasn't good enough on the day to hold off Code of Honor. Now, they added the blinkers this time out for Tacitus. Usually when I see equipment for a grade one race, equipment always means one thing. There is a problem that they are trying to fix. It's never usually a positive. Do you think it was good or bad, the move to the Blinks? Well, I don't think it was necessary in all honesty. I think that he just kind of got unlucky in his last two starts, um, being the um, uh, the Jim Dandy and the Belmont. I think he just got unlucky there, and I didn't think it was anything necessarily that the Blinkers um, could have helped. I know there was a lack of focus leading into the gate 
for the gym dandy. I know that he was he was acting like a horse that wasn't focused, and and obviously those blinkers will help with that with that focus. Um, but it, and I also don't think that it backfired necessarily. I don't think that the blinkers are the reason that he was on the lead. I think he was on the lead because Jose asked him to go forward, and no one else went. So, obviously, Code of Honor won by three. Who do you think ran the best in the race? Well, I mean, it's it's tricky. I mean, I, I think Code of Honor got a good trip. I, I think that he, you know, he had pace in front of him. He he uh, saved ground when it mattered, and he tipped out and came running. I thought he got a good trip. I thought Tacitus didn't get a good trip. Um, you know, I think it's probably safe to say that this is the third race in a row where Tacitus has run second, and he's arguably arguably been the best horse in the race. Belmont, I think he was best. Uh, the Jim Dandy, I think he was best. And 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 so even and in this race, I think he was best as well. Now, are you saying that because of the biases over the last couple of days? Well, no. I mean, I think that in Belmont Day, the rail was act absolutely where you wanted to be, and he was wide around there. In the Jim Dandy, the rail is not where you wanted to be, and he was down in there finishing late to try to catch tax. And then um, Saturday in the Travers, the inside isn't where you wanted to be uh, that day as well, and he spent a lot of time down there. I think there was, I think that you know the Travers was probably less less uh, uh, impacted by the bias like the previous two performances were. But I definitely think that it had something to do with the way he ran being stuck down on the inside. So for me, the way I was going to try and finish out my uh, my pick five was I said I'm going to take Code of Honor, Tacitus, Mucho Gusto, toss them out, and I'm going to play five horses. Those horses were looking at bikinis, scars are cool, tax, highest honors, Owendale. Obviously, wrong decision because the top three finished, you know, one, two, three. Do you think that a new face will emerge to challenge for three-year-old title or one of the horses from the derbies are just going to keep on going? Um, I think it matters a lot what happens with, with Code of Honor, obviously, if Maximum Security comes back. Um, if Code of Honor wins the, the Jockey Club Gold Cup at Belmont, which I would imagine that would be his next start, then you know he, he, would, be, um, he would be definitely up there in the conversation. I still think right now it's Maximum Security's race to lose. Maximum Security won the Florida Derby grade one. He won the Haskell grade one, and he kind of won the Kentucky Derby <laughs> Uh, grade one, so I think those those three races are are have him with the strongest resume at this point. But we also have you see what happens in the Pennsylvania Derby, what happens in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Um, I don't think the the awesome again out west is going to influence the uh, three year old picture. And then obviously what happens in the Classic, maybe the Dirt Mile, but likely the the Classic will be the the one that helps solve that problem. Okay, now we're going to move on to race number nine, the personal ensign. Obviously, the top two horses, Elate, Midnight Bisu. That's all anybody was talking about for that race. Are you surprised that when they finish 1-2, the exact comes back over $10 for $2? Um, yeah, that's pretty shocking. I mean, I think a lot of people try to get cute with some other alternatives in that race. But it was very likely that one of those two horses were going to run, and it was very likely that one of those two horses would I mean, that both of those horses would run 1-2. So... Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great opportunity to make some money getting a $10 exacta back that way. I wonder what it would have been like the other way. Um, but, uh, I would imagine the Midnight Bisu Elate was better than the Elate Midnight Bisu. But, uh, cause you know, there, there had been some chatter about Midnight Bisu, maybe not wanting the distance. She was drawn on the rail. She hasn't working as good as, as she had in the past. Her race at Monmouth wasn't that good. So there was more of a. Uh, of a narrative around her. So her winning, I think, probably helped that payoff. But no, it was a phenomenal race. Um, that was a, it's a fun, fun race to watch. When you watch the head-on, you'll notice that Mike Smith was, was playing a little cat and mouse with Jose, and he was pretty much hiding behind him the entire time. Um, 
and, and, and on our Fox show, we had Richie Migliori talk about when someone's directly behind you, it's very hard to see them. And uh, Jose kept looking around, and he, he, you know, where's where's those red silks, and where's Mike, where's Mike Smith? And um, and they, they threw it down in the stretch. I thought it was a phenomenal race. Now, Elite has finished second three years in a row at one of the major races at Saratoga. Do you think that now she just, you know, is she ever going to get over the hump? Yeah, I mean, I think she's she's a tricky horse because I just think that, that you know, I don't think the mile and an eighth is why she got beat. I just think she's that much better in a mile and a quarter. Um, I just think that she's a big, rangy, you know, stamina-driven filly that just grinds away um, at, 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 at uh, you know, at, at a high clip. And I just think that going a mile and a quarter, she just can't be beat. I, I don't think Midnight Beast can beat her a mile and a quarter. And I think she'd be extremely competitive in the classic at a mile and a quarter. So, um I, I, I think she's over the hump. I think she's a great horse, and I think that sometimes in racing and in handicapping, we become so results-oriented where, you know, we don't take everything into, into consideration. She ran a winning race, and if her nose gets down one second later, then the conversation is completely different. We're talking about Midnight Bisu not wanting to get a mile and an eighth versus, you know, it, it's they both won winning races, and it just so happened that one of them got their picture taken. So you think that even with a late running second, you still think that she's one of the top horses for the classic? Absolutely. Yeah, I think if she ran the classic, she would be, she would have a legit shot. Um, with a lot of those horses that are that are going to show up there, possibly not wanting the mile and a quarter. Obviously, Thunder Snow's had some issues. Um, he doesn't need to to prove that he can get a mile and a quarter, but he's had some issues. So we'll have to see what happens with him. I think a lot of people question whether or not McKenzie wants to go that far. Um, we'll see what happens in the Woodward here. Now I'm going a mile and a quarter. Catholic boys on the sideline. I mean, I think a late would have uh, seeking the soul didn't run well in, in the Pacific Classic. I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for a late to run well there. And, and part of it is if she would have won the mile and eighth race, they probably would have had to just go with the distaff. But now that she didn't win, uh, that might allow them to be a little bit more creative about where they put her in the Breeders' Cup. All right, on to race number eight, the Woodford Reserve Boston Spa. Now, something interesting in this race is a lot of the horses that were lower prices didn't run well at all. The top two choices were uh, second, last, and last. And significant form of horse that you chose on top ended up being the winner. Yeah, this is a hard race. Um, you know, part of, I think, this show, uh, one of the great parts about it is is we've, we've, we've acknowledged that it's a red board, right? So you're acknowledging that at the beginning, so it's not nearly as annoying for people. It just so happens that I pick significant form. I think a lot of times on 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 your show, I think you're going to probably have a lot more horses that you're talking about that people didn't pick, and you're trying to explain why. So um, to be clear, I thought this was a very tough race, and in my multi-race situations, I did like a weight at all. I used pretty much all the horses um, in here because I thought it was tough, but I thought significant form was specifically um, interesting. And the reason I thought she was was because she was always meant to be a star in Chad Brown's barn. I remember a couple of summers ago, there was the narrative that when her and Rushing Fall were kind of coming up together, that Rushing Fall was the one you wanted now, but Significant Form was going to be the special one that you wanted down the line, the Beverly D type, the uh, the Philly and Mare Turf eventually type. She was the one that was going to turn out to be the special one. And I remembered that. I remembered that, that dialogue. And then so many races where I would see her kind of get into trouble and get into weird spots where she didn't necessarily take advantage of 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 her of her races and part of it was her inability to relax she was um she was kind of always on the muscle she was always getting these kind of odd trips and i just felt like after she tried the two sprint races 
I felt like she might have learned something then. She might have learned that she can relax a little bit. She might have learned to not to listen to the rider in those situations. And, and the five and a half didn't work out well last time. The switch to Johnny Velasquez, not that I think Johnny's a better turf rider than Irad, but just a different turf rider than Irad. He's got different hands. He's got different ways of going. And, um, and I just thought that she was going to be interesting at a price, and, and uh, she ended up running extremely well. Just to get back on Johnny V, he was red hot last week, and he was red hot over the weekend. Uh, secret message, Masha, first and second choice, second last dead last. Any reasons, anything that you can come up with? No, I mean, I think secret message was, I, I, you know, I wasn't crazy about her. I mean, I, I thought she could win, but there wasn't a whole lot of things that got me overly excited. I think Masha is one where, you know, I, a couple of things. One there was a little cut in the ground on Saturday still, even though that it hadn't rained for a few days. I think there still was a little bit of cut in the ground on Saturday. I think she might not have liked that. I also think that, like, that performance where she, you know, she might have been a little bit overbet based on that performance. It was so visually um, engaging, by the way, that she won, and she was splitting horses, and she kept flying up the rail. I just think maybe she was a little bit overbet in that spot. And, and she was, you know, obviously a big step up in class facing allowance horses to facing horses that are competitive and, and graded stakes events. So um, I didn't see a, a real a, a real excuse. She was, you know, she she popped out there late. I remember being in the middle of the track late, and she was just empty. So let's take an aside here, Jonathan. You talked about Red Boring and how you picked the horse on top. What to you is right about Red Boring and what to you is wrong about Red Boring? Yeah, so I think that there's a difference, right? Like, um, <laughs> I, look, we all know the annoying guy at the racetrack or, or gal that is, is, uh, wants to tell you all the reasons why you should have had the horse you didn't have that they had. That's annoying Red Boarding, right? That's, that's, uh, you know, it's the wrong time, it's the wrong place, and the delivery is wrong, and the purpose of it is wrong, too. It's more of banging on your chest than it is trying to be educational and explain. I think the point of this show is more to educate someone as to the things that were seen or how, um, how a horse won so that that can be used and applied later. When you see a horse who had talent um, as a young horse, a, a horse who had, had some unfortunate trips... A, a, a horse that was switching uh, riders, a horse that was stretching out, all of these different things that, that, you know, that kind of fall into the category of significant form. Now, next time, hopefully you can see those things when you're looking at the races on your own. Huge difference between what you're trying to accomplish with this show versus, you know, versus the guy who's, who's, uh, you know, I told you I love the seven. I told you I love the seven. Ah, that's, that's the disgusting red boarding, the derogatory, red boarding that we're, we're, we're trying to avoid. This is just a uh, kind of a retrospective look at, at, a, at a race from an educational standpoint to try to, even, try to inform. So with that on the back burner, race seven, the single of all singles, the single that did not win, chance a lot. Uh, thoughts on the Alan Jerkins? I thought it was a horrible ride. Um, and, and I say that in, in, in a way where, um, and I say that there's probably some frustration in my voice, obviously, because it's single the horse. But the other part of the frustration is, is that um, I think it's been pretty publicized that, you know, when Chancelot was opening up in the Amsterdam and, and Jaramillo was still kind of getting after him a little bit. So I'm, 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 I'm feeling like my annoyance at him is a little bit more welcome because now in the race, instead of taking, you know, you have the fastest horse in the world 
and you rate them and go 23 on the lead and you invite the closers in. We talk about it on our show all the time. It's very annoying when you invite the closers in. You take away a horse's weapon. That was his weapon. People are going to say that he bounced. I don't think he bounced. People are going to say that uh, it took too much out of him last time. I just don't think that's the case. I think that he was ridden passively. He was going from six and a half to seven. And the way that he was finishing going seven, there was no question he was going to get the distance. But he needed to be put in the race. And he needed to get... And he got he spent a little bit more time down on the inside than he probably needed to. And if he would have opened up a little bit more like he did last time, he would have been able to get over and dictate where he was. Um, I just thought it was a poor ride. And I think that that uh, I, I hope that people think that he's a fraud so that I can bet him next time. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people thought that mind control made sense. I heard a lot of people talk about the horse, Baracho, Nitrous, mind control. Those are the horses that made sense. Um, you know, this is one of those races where I don't really have any need or desire to red board because, uh, I mean, I guess I see why mind control could have won the race, but the circumstances were that, the, the horse that should have won was Chancelot was just ridden poorly. So um, if I if I could go back and bet the race again, knowing what we know now, I would absolutely single Chancelot again and hope that the second version of that race, Jaramillo would have let him go a little bit faster. Do you think there's a rider change next time out? Um, you know, I actually had this conversation. Apparently there's some, there's some uh, cultural connection between Jorge and and Jaramillo and the ownership group and Ivan Rodriguez. And so there might be some loyalty there from off the racetrack, from a friendship standpoint, from a, from a, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, almost a familial, uh, standpoint. But yeah, I, I texted, uh, I texted two of my prominent jockey agent friends and said, if you haven't called Jorge yet, you're not doing your job. So for me, I 100% think he bounced. Uh, there's a book called Speed to Spare, I believe. It's part of the DRF library. And uh, one of the chapters, he brings up like a list of like what certain bounce candidates are. And one of them is, you know, it's always going to be more speed types, more sprinters, instead of being route or closers. And so I think to me, maybe because you saw he was going after him, and it's always, everyone thinks a bounce is just lowering in numbers. No, it's when the race beforehand overtaxed the horse. And usually they need some time off. We said that if he bounced 20 points, he would still win the race. Well, he bounced 25 and only lost by a neck. So, in this way, like, obviously it was everyone's single. I only went too deep in the pick five. I picked Nitrous, which also was not a good pick. Um, I didn't really think about the closers in this race. I thought it would still be, you know, kind of on the front end. Um... Bouncing is a typical thing that when you look at it, a lot of people just look at numbers, and it's not. You have to watch the race. You have to see how the horse did. And uh, just to kind of close out that race, I think the horse will probably be having a different rider next time out, even though with all the connections. And I think you're going to see this horse, you know, drop a 43-3 and and just go to the gun and win. The problem is is that the, the two riders that popped in my mind that I thought would be good for him would be Ricardo Santana, but he won't because he's got Matoli. Uh-huh. So there's going to be, a, you know, the uh, Jorge's not going to want to give him the mount and then lose it to, to Matoli. And then Imperial Hint with with Javier Castellano because Javier rode Sharp Azteca for the same connections a couple times. I thought Javier, but Javier's got Imperial Hint, so that probably won't work either. I think Mike Smith would be phenomenal on the horse. Fortunately, they just don't have that relationship. I don't think I've ever seen Mike ride a horse for Jorge. So um, just kind of a forward guy, aggressive guy. Um I would imagine that Jose 
Jose Ortiz's agent probably called as well. So we'll see what happens. Um, as far as the bouncing thing, I just I remember in one of Buyer's books, I, I think it was Buyer on Speed, he, he, he mentions more that he feels like that it's not so much that the horse regresses, but that he just goes back to the norm. That he had this freakish performance, and it's not that that performance took anything out of him. It's not. I mean, I'm sure it did, but but it's more that he went back to just where the norm normal level was for him. And I don't think that Saturday was a normal level. I think it was just how he was ridden. I just think it was how he was ridden. I think if he went 44 and change, he opens up by six. They might come running at him late, but they would have had to run sooner, earlier, and faster than they did. One last thing, J.K., about that too. Uh, Migliori said something about in the Amsterdam that he kind of you know got after him in the stretch there. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought that uh, Mig's point about that was actually pretty uh, enlightening. Um, that that Chancelot in, in the Amsterdam was giving his all. He was running his hardest. He obviously was running his hardest. He ran a, a 121 buyer. Um, and uh, Jaramillo was still kind of getting after him a little bit. And Mig mentioned that he felt like that could be confusing to the, to the horse. When you, you know, you're laying it down. I'm laying it down, and then you're punishing me. Um and, and it can make them, you know, not want to run like that anymore, not want to run that hard. So uh, that that absolutely could be the, the situation as well. When they were in the stretch and they went 23 and 40, whatever, and, uh, and, and Jaramillo gets to asking him and the other horses are running at him, there might have been a point in that race where he was like, look, man, last time I ran hard, you're still getting after me. So uh, I'm not really sure how we're going to handle this. So that, I think there's something to that. I think it's a really interesting point that Mig made uh, on the show. All right, now we're going to transition from the Saturday stake races to the Friday card. Race number five, it was the Yaddo. So, Bell at the Spa won at 31-1. to 1. Now, for me, in and out concept is something that you learn a lot from uh, Kramer for form cycles. If you look back, uh, four back, second by a nose at 24-1. to 1. Comes back off the turf, run, doesn't run that well at all. Comes back with another good race, wins at 9-1. to 1 and then comes back in the allowance race to run off the board. To me, this race signified in and out. The bad race was last, and now we would get a good race out of the horse. You get a 31-to-1 shot to win, and a really, really nice mutual of $64. Yeah, you know, looking at those races, the bad races, obviously there's some excuses. That would be the problem with me, looking at it as more of like a pattern, is that like the bad race... Um, so if you go, let's just go four back. So the, the race in, in June uh, 18 at Belmont, at Belmont, horse runs second there, 24 to 1, runs well, then um, runs off the turf, going a mile and an eighth and runs poorly. Now, I, I'm not going to, that's like that race never really happened to me. Yeah. Like mentally, I just pretend it doesn't even exist because it's obviously not what she wants to do. She doesn't want to run on the dirt. She doesn't want to go a mile and an eighth on the dirt. Um, then she comes back off of an extremely long layoff. And wins in June, um, uh, June nineteenth she wins. So it's like there's such a big gap in between all of these races that to me the cycle is 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 could be misleading, you know. And if that's how you land there, it's how you land there with a thirty to one shot. But it, I, this is the type of horse that I can't find because her last race was just so poor, and she's run well off a layoff before. Um, obviously the June twelfth race she ran well off a layoff. So the July thirty first race when she ran so poorly. Now, uh, that, that would have been a race that, that would keep her off of all of my tickets and why she wasn't on any of my tickets on Friday. So, with most long shots that you see, usually it's a pace scenario, and one of it is lone speed. 
or one of its, you know, a meltdown. So this horse obviously went out on the lead, and uh, English Soul looked like he was supposed to go, but then didn't. Yeah, I wasn't sure what, what happened there. Um, Manny, Manny obviously should have gone to the front end with English Soul and, and gotten the trip that Bella the Spa did, but, but he didn't go. So the next thing you know, Dylan was loose on the lead, and, and those are the types of horses that, that, like you mentioned, that win at big prices. It's hard to design a race where something that you can't, explain is going to happen so it's hard for when you're sitting at home and you're looking at a race like this and you're like well Bella the Spa could end up on the front end if Manny doesn't go to the lead and that's a really tough thing to do it from time to time I think what you have to do is if there's a race where you don't have a strong opinion there's a race where you predict there could be chaos then you can imagine all those scenarios and use those horses accordingly but I I can't see how you can play pretend of what might happen and land on a horse like that if it's me for a chaos race, uh, it's uh, Dick Mitchell, those kind of guys. They use, like, they call it like a matrix where, like, they throw out all the short prices. They'd play all the exactas for all the other longer shots. Obviously, this one wouldn't have hit because the uh, favorite came and ran second. And Bell with a spot only won by a neck, so we're only a neck away from saying good ride by Dylan still got caught in the end. Absolutely. I mean, it's I, I think there's a lot of different things you can do with horses like this. Um and, 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 and I think that the, the finding horses that have a particular pace situation that, that, that could help them win at a big shot, I think that always helps too. And I've always been a fan of the forward types, the, the horses that you can get loose on the lead. I feel like they're, they're, those are the dangerous long shots that I like. And now we're going to switch back one more day to Thursday, race six. Kind of the concept I want to work on here is uh, the – Favorite, the entry one at like six to five. And Mo and Go was a 12 to one shot that everyone thought had a really good shot. Looked really good in the paddock. Are you more of one that when you're making exacta savers, because now you have to do two different, you're hoping that two horses do one thing, or are you just up to betting the 12 to one shot to win it or play it across the board? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't ever play it across the board. I think that there's so much more value um, and equity in, in, in playing exactas. I feel like as horse players, um, we work so hard to, to formulate opinions and, and to understand races and race dynamics. I feel like playing mow and go across the board is a waste of that opinion that horse is going to run well. I think being able to hook that horse up with logical horses and exactas and tries is a much more valuable way to express that opinion. So um, I, I, I never bet a, a, across the board. So I, that, that's one of the things that I would do with a horse like that is try to use him um, in those other spots of, of the try exacta and super and then the other thing is, is, is like you mentioned, you, you know, when you when you play exactas, you need two things to kind of go right. One of the other reasons I like to play doubles and pick threes and pick fours, I only need one thing really to go right. I'm not depending on on two different animals to do what I expect them to do, rather than it just being one. So, um, in that race, I actually didn't like Mo and Go. I thought that the entry was going to be extremely tough. Um, uh, had had notes that uh, the one lucky Curlin needed longer, got longer. Uh, had notes that enforceable needed blinkers got blinkers so there was two horses that I thought individually could have been favored and they were uh, were an entry and so um, I I was uh, I was right about that part of it but I was uh, I was desperate I was desperate to get there I did not have Mo and Go so for me I also think that maybe playing across the board it might be more of the passive play because if you look at it the horse would have made thirteen dollars minus your six dollar across the board bet so you make up six dollars profit. If you play the exact and you just play it one three, it's twenty two dollars for, I believe a buck, 
and then you go from there. So obviously the exacta was the way to go in this race, but it's also, like we said, it's the more aggressive way because you're choosing two horses, whereas Mo and Go is my opinion, bet them across the board. You're still making $6 profit, and I think what a lot of people don't think is they're like, oh, that's not enough profit. If you play enough races and you keep, like we've talked about last week, records, and your across-the-board bets are making profitable margins, then you should be able to keep doing that. Yeah, I just think that I think that in those situations, especially with the with the with the probables being available to see the exact probables, to see how much the one three is going to pay, to see how much the six three, the six being Portos, the horse that Todd Pletcher trained, to see to 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 see um, the eight horse that Kenny McPeak had. If you like that horse as well as another horse that I used, you can play exact the probable. You can play exact as based on the probables to get back the same return. You can essentially. Dutch those exact the problems. If you're gonna bet ten bucks, you bet four dollars or five dollars on the combination with the entry with the three. Then you can spend two dollars, three dollars on the on the Portos with the three. And essentially, what you're doing is you're saying that I do think that that Mo and Go is gonna hit the board. I think he's gonna run first or second or third or whatever. But instead of instead of just stopping there, then hook that opinion up with another opinion, and you 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 make a, you can make a bigger profit rather than. Than a, than a smaller profit you would get in the place pool or the, or the show pool. So now we'll move it over to race nine. It was the stake race of the day. It was the risk averse and catch a bid one, but we had Dalica, a German bred at 20 to one run second. So kind of the same type of idea of the last race, uh, betting. Now, sometimes people have smaller bankrolls. Some people have bigger bankrolls. If you want to make those Dutch bets you were talking about, but sometimes all you can do is bet the win place. The win place on this horse would have paid nine ten on a four dollar wager, so you're more than doubling your money. The exacta did come back a little bit shorter than the last one; it was eighteen ninety for a buck. Yeah, no, I think that um, I think that when you can when you can find a long shot, and 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 you have to find a way to to maximize that value based on your betting personality and your bankroll. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do if you had a thousand dollars in your pocket with a horse that's twenty to one. And then there's there's not very many things you can do with a horse that's twenty to one when you got five dollars in your pocket. So I think you have to obviously evaluate what that is. I just think that there's a way to be creative um, and and to dig deeper in these situations. We talk about it all the time. If you look at a ten race card, you're going to be wrong uh, significantly more than you're right. You probably have a shot at being right two or three times on the card. If you're going to be right, you want to make sure that you maximize that opinion and make as much money as you can. I would hate for someone to be right three times out of ten. And two of those times, they just pick up the place price. Because unfortunately, that's not going to pay for the other seven times that you're wrong. So I think that's part of the reason why, if that's not part of your game of maximizing that and, and using those exactas, I understand that win place is, ex- is extremely more, uh, extremely um, simple compared to, to doing exactas and back wheeling and tries and, and having 12 trifecta tickets and this and that and the other. But I think that if you want to really maximize your opinion when it is right, uh, you, you got to try to find a way into those pools. So for me, uh, obviously last week Pete said I was at the number of a bankroll. I kind of had a little bit left here. And so something that I used to learn and watch was night school with Joe Christofek and them. And something that he taught me was the ladder bet. So you bet two to win, four to place, eight to show. Now, obviously you don't end up in the place in show pools, but if you're doubling and then quadrupling that type of stuff, I think Dalica paid something around thirty-six to forty dollars for me. It was a fourteen-dollar wager, but it's more of me being a passive player and knowing that 
I can try to like, you know, at least keep a five percent, you know, ROI. Would I have had the exacta? Maybe I just like if I have a p- opinion on one horse, not so much that I think the favorite can win, but there's sometimes the favorite's just the wrong choice, as we saw in the Boston Spa. So if I don't like a favorite and I'm trying to do that, I still want to maximize as much money as I possibly can. Yeah, I think one of the, I think actually, I, I've never thought about this until you mentioned it, the ladder bet, but I'm about to try to make up my own new bet called the reverse ladder bet. One thing that I would do with that if I was telling someone is I would spend $8 to win on a horse. I would spend $4 worth of exactas with that horse running second and $2 worth of tries with that horse running third. I'd go the other way around to really try to take advantage of it. If, if you have a 10 to one shot who wins, having $2 to win on them, like we said, you're going to be right three times mm-hmm. out of a 10 race card. You need to pick up more money in those situations. So for me, I don't want to have $8 to win on that horse. Um, if he happens to run second, I want to have $4 worth of exactas on that horse. And if he happens to run third, then I'm going to try to try to cold cock a, a, a trifecta with him running in, in, in third. And with, with the 50 cent denominations that we'd have at most racetracks now, that's really not that hard to do a $2 try. You can If you single your your key horse, if you use Delica, or, or what was it, Delica, Delica, whatever her name yep. is, the German horse that <laughs> Al Stahl trains, you could do, you could have done a situation where you went, you know, catch a bid and uh, new and improved with Delica in second. That, that's not a hard thing. That's not a hard wager to come up with. And it would have been, you know, it could have been more lucrative than betting the horse to play. So, um, you know, I can't stress enough what I tell people is that, you know, you just have to be aggressive in those situations to take advantage. If you like a horse like the leak of, you know, facing two Chad Brown horses, um, I just don't think you're doing yourself any favors by walking away with a place price. So for me, I don't know, remember who you really liked in the spot, Jonathan. I love the Lika, And one of the main things I liked about it was Miguel Mena now in step Jose Ortiz. Sometimes with longer shots, you only need one or two things to be able to pick the horse, whereas if you're picking a favorite, you need four or five check marks. Jose Ortiz, out-of-town trainer, um, in the last two years at Saratoga, they only rode from twice, never won. I know Al Stahl from doing stuff over at Arlington. He's a good turf trainer. He's good off a layoff. I thought the last race was kind of eh, first time in a stake race. Also, some horses sometimes just don't like Arlington or don't like a track. So I said 20 to 1, the leading rider jumps on, and the last, the race that he won two back, or that she won two back, was uh, a solid enough race that I thought if she improves, she has a chance to do some damage. Yeah, I think that, I think that when you're trying to find a long shot, if you can, if you can find a race um, in the recent forum cycle that could win this race, I think that's a starting point. And so I think if you look two back to her race that she had at Churchill, you can say to yourself, oh, that, that race is actually good enough. Now, in the races surrounding it, why didn't she run so well? You look back to the to the race at Churchill. First off, a layoff in May. First time in the U.S. Um, she was three to one that day. She, there was a slow pace. She hit she the was, gate. Yeah, she was. She broke away slow. She was fighting. She was in last. It was. There was a lot of things to give her an excuse there. So you can essentially draw a line through that race. And then, like you mentioned, the stakes race, trying Arlington Park. Um, slow pace that day. Maybe there was something about that she didn't like. And you can you can pretend that that race doesn't go there, and you just look at the race that actually could fit. Suddenly, you're getting a, a horse that's twenty to one that could run better today. This might also be something to look of an in and outer again. You know, we've had four races in the form cycle: bad race, good race, bad race, good race. Is she going to run a bad race next time out? Who really knows? 
Yeah, you can always, you know, like I think we, you know, we talked about it earlier. There's always you can find a pattern in anything, and I, I would just tell people to be careful with patterns because I feel like patterns just look at the surface and don't look at what's underneath. Uh, underneath the hood and there's a lot of reasons why situations happen rather than it just being some chronological order of the races you know uh, bad bad breaks bad surfaces um, you know a, a cold in their barn um, uh, some kind of virus that goes around in the barn the weather the, the ground had given it missed the work um, you know there's a million different things that I think can, that can happen and I, I think you just have to be careful of saying, oh, well, um, every other race they run good, so this is every other race they're going to run good. Oh, this is every other race they're going to run bad. I think that you have to probably try to dig a little deeper into that. And now we head to our producer of the show, Mr. PTF, Pete Fornatel. Pete, how are you doing today? Thank you, my friend. It's a great pleasure to be back here with you two. So, Pete, I understand you have some listener questions for us. What have you got for us today? Well, this is a good one, and I like it not least because it, it kind of trolls JK, something I enjoy doing on the other show from time to time. But I do think it's not really meaning to troll. It's actually trying to have an intelligent conversation that feels more right for this show than the normal show. So Rick Mathewson says that JK said something on the Fox broadcast the other day that he didn't agree with. Sweet Giselle was 10 to 1 in the morning line, which prompted both JK and Andy Serling to make her a best bet. But she opened and stayed at more like four to one. JK was asked what to do in the situation. His response was to try to hook her up with other horses in multi-race bets. Uh, Rick does not agree with that. He says that if four to one isn't value, aren't you supposed to pass on betting the horse? There's a great deal of consistency in how a horse is bet across pools, particularly when the odds are visible. And that is why people use double probables to estimate fair win odds. Combining Sweet Giselle would increase the return in theory, but also increase the risk. If you think the other horses are enough value to make the combination bettable, why not just bet those horses rather than let Sweet Giselle drain value from the bet? JK, you don't look happy over there, but I want to hear your response to this. Well, I mean, there's a lot of what ifs in the world. First of all, I'm not going to just... I'm not going to just blindly do it. I'm saying, I'm saying that in a situation where a horse is ten to one morning line, if you can bet that horse in the pick three, which is not visible, you can't see that pool. If you like, you, so you can use that as a way to try to single into that horse, where you can get closer to that value. Um, the other thing is, is that I'm not going to just take three horses in the race before that and and bet a five dollar double. I'm going to do do it efficiently, where I can try to get a certain return you know, based on, you know, try to get a return that's better than four to one by using three or four or even five horses in the race before that. So there's a lot of different ways to go about it. It's not just like I'm going to blindly say like, oh, well, it's not, you know, the horse is going to be four to one. So I'm just going to bet, uh, I'm going to just bet doubles and try to make it five to one. And then I understand the inherent risk of having another horse involved in the equation, but I'm going to try to find a way to make that four to one shot pay 10 to one. And I, and I just have to find a way to, to wrap that opinion in with other opinions. I feel like this comes down to how selection-oriented you are. And, of course, that's going to be amplified when you're on TV. And the gig is to pick horses. It's, it's not—I don't know how well it would go over on the show— if you said, this was my pick, but I can't bet at this price, maybe it's sophisticated enough for that, but maybe it would confuse the audience. And 
again, it's not really the way you approach betting the horses. Spencer, in the talks we've had on this show and elsewhere, you're somebody who's much more value-oriented, student of the classic handicapping books, whereas JK, I would describe as more of a street-smart horse player who's read books but really learned his methodology and developed his gambling personality by firing every day out there at the windows. How would you answer Rick's question, Spencer? Uh, For me... First of all, if I'm not making any value lines for that race, I think four to one. If you ever like, if you ever like a horse and it pays over ten dollars, and you haven't bet on it, that's probably a mistake. Uh, ten dollar horses to me are pretty much what's going to keep your bankroll, you know, steady and you know improving. It's like we've talked about before. You know, James Quinn was able to pick, or even like someone like Litfin was able to pick at thirty three to uh at thirty three percent. His types only had to be, you know, five to two or whatnot. If you're trying to pick, you know, seven, eight, four to one shots, you know, your percentage is going to be more like 20%. So you're picking one in five instead of one in three. So it, it's like what we said with me and JK. It goes back to, do you want to lose 10 races before you win one? Do you want to, you know, hit three out of five by just betting chalk and then, you know, making minuscule returns? Matoli and the forego would be one at four to five. Um, for me... I've always made the talk with my father that I'm never going to talk someone off of a, off a horse that's four to one or higher because ten dollar winners are what's going to you know help your bankroll. Anything under that, you know, it depends. Good stuff, guys. Just a reminder to the listeners that as the producer of this show, I will be fielding questions in future weeks for Spencer's array of guests. Feel free to reach out to us. You can hit me up at at looms boldly. Spencer, remind folks your Twitter handle. It's at handy underscore capper. So you can hit us with questions there or over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com through the contact feed. I'll leave you, Spencer, to close things out. Just want to thank everybody. Thank my producer, PTF. Thank my special guest, Jonathan Kinchin. If you're interested in more from me, I have a website out there. It's called TheDailyGallop.net. We are going over, you know, Saratoga Del Mar for the last few weeks. And we have Colonial Downs until it closes. I believe we're also going to be doing Kentucky Downs when it opens up in a short while. Other than that, this has been Redboard Rewind. Talk to you soon.